Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to you. It's good to see you all here this morning. Thanks for being here. Today we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 11 uh, and how Jesus deals with dead things. We'll take a look at that. That's how he addresses the, the things in our life that have not gone as we had hoped and have died in our life in some way. So we're going to be actually looking at this morning our John chapter 11. We're just looking at the text first before we go to the outline or the notes here. So if you have the Bible with you, we'll be turning directly to there, John chapter 11. One way to uh, act like we know the Bible is Catholic is to get Bible caps. Then we can impress our Protestant friends. <laughs> Okay. okay, let's begin with some prayer first. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Father, we give you praise that in this season of Lent, you call us to be a people who walk in the light of the resurrection of your Son. And uh, thank you for the Word of God, particularly the Word regarding Lazarus, and how, Lord, you uh, resurrect the things in our life that seem to be dead to us. The things that seem to have been lost and gone, you resurrect because you are the resurrection and the life. So we pray, Lord, that this day the word of God will become uh, a, a sword that would pierce our hearts in the tenderness of your love for us. So that we'll be able to see how you enter into uh, our lives, the things that we have called dead or forgotten or broken or lost, how you've come to restore so Lord, we pray that you would do that for us this morning, that your word would become a light for us in the midst of our darkness, that would become guidance for us in the midst of confusion, and would become hope for us in the midst of despair and encouragement for us as your people. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. John chapter 11, what I'm going to do is kind of go through just portions of it and talk about it and then until we reach the end of it. It's, it's rather long. Uh, this is um, in cycle A of the readings. The church has three cycles, A, B, and C, um, for each year. They focus in on the gospel. But in the Lenten season, in cycle A, there is uh, three sets of readings from John's gospel. The man born blind, uh, I'm sorry, the woman at the well first, and the man born blind, and then Lazarus. And they occur on the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of the year. They were designed that way because those coming into the church are going to be baptized would hear these readings that would call them to a deepening of conversion in their life. And that was obviously for the whole congregation as well. Um, Year B and C don't have those readings. However, you can choose them as an option. The church gives you the option to have them. um, If you have a person who's a catechumen coming to the church and they're at that mass, then you're obliged to have the readings there. Um, But the church also gives you the option. So uh, this reading is part of a trilogy, if you would, uh, by which the church uses to call its people to a deepening of conversion, particularly in the Lenten season. So let's take a look at John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mar- Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
Now, Martha is the Martha in Luke chapter 10 who um, was going around fixing the tables and everything and complained to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, how come my sister isn't helping, you, helping me out? Instead, she's sitting here and listening to you. And Mary is the person who was in Luke chapter 7 who came in, anointed the feet of Jesus in the midst of the Pharisee's house, wiped uh, his feet with her hair and the tears and took the precious ointment, which she saved up money for, to use that as a as a foreshadowing of his burial, which was... Uh, so that's the two characters there that are really important in our gospel today. Um, so we see in verse 3, so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Okay, so Jesus had a relationship with these three, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He entered into both of their lives, Martha and Mary. Lazarus, he was a close friendship with. Whenever Jesus was in Bethany, this is whom he hang, hung with, these three people. You know, Jesus, where Jesus chilled out during ministry times that we went to take a break from things. So, so her language there, Lord, he whom you love is ill, implies a, a friendship that was deepening there in their relationship. So this is somebody whom he knew and somebody who knew him. And verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, it, he said, this illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. All right, so Jesus is aware of the Father's plan and providence here is that he's allowing, the Father's allowing this uh, to take place in Lazarus' life because the Father has a deeper and broader plan that will later become known. And Jesus is aware of that. <clears throat> Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And again, the love here indicates a deepening of relationships that he had. So these are, aren't acquaintances. These aren't people that he just happened to bump into in ministry situations, you know. These are people that he cultivated a deepening friendship with. Verse 6, so when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go again, or let us go into Judea again. Now, typically, the Jewish mourning period was 10 days. So Jesus was not late for the funeral. Okay? He was, he was going to arrive in the middle of the funeral. Um, sometimes people have said, well, he, he was just going to arrive late. Now, he didn't really, wasn't arriving late at all because their, length, their period of mourning was rather extended. So he was planning on getting there in the middle of the funeral. Um, so then it says, um, let's see, where am I? Seven, right? Yeah, seven, verse seven. Then he, after he said this to disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. The Jews is a reference to the Pharisees who were sworn enemies of Jesus. Although the irony of it is the Pharisees and Jesus happen to believe a lot of the same things, as we'll see in a moment when it comes to the resurrection of the dead. <coughs> Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But for anyone who walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Okay, so... Typically in John's gospel, there is this play on of, of uh, contrasting adjectives. Um, so you have night and day, you have light and darkness. John always uses that. So you have death and life. And so the idea, so death or night for John is separation from God. It's ignorance of his ways and ignorance of relationship. Ignorance doesn't mean they don't have a good IQ means they just don't know because of the hardness of their heart. They're not seeking out God. 
Okay. And light means walking in the revealed truth of who Jesus is. Okay. So that's the, that's the language that Jesus uses here. So what he's saying is he's identifying that there are segments like the Pharisees who are, by the hardness of their heart, are, as it were, not buying into who Jesus is. It's not because they're not smart. It's because they have a hardness of their heart against him. All right. So, uh, verse 11, thus he spoke, and then he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him out of sleep. This is a beautiful language that now has appeared in the funeral liturgy um, of the Catholic Church since the revised uh, missal several years ago. They use the language of falling asleep or asleep. Um, Jesus uses to describe someone who has died. They're physically, they've died. They've fallen asleep. But the disciples don't really get it. They say that verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, the question comes down to is, didn't they believe already about Jesus? I mean, John's Gospels, chapter 11, we're reading today. In John chapter 2, he did the wedding at Cana. It says that his disciples believed in him. So what, for John, belief was always a deepening of conversion. That's why John chapter 11 was in cycle A for those coming into the church. It was like, grow deeper in Christ. Grow more converted to him so that your life becomes more shaped by him. Okay, so then he says, um, but let us go. And Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. There's your optimist in the group. <laughs> okay. So Thomas, remember he's the doubter, the one that would doubt it, but he's also the one that was forecasting doom and gloom. Okay, here. And Beth, well, Bethany really wasn't the place where Jesus was going to face uh, death, but yeah, that would come later on. So, okay, so verse 17 now. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, typically what happened in this group, there were people that were friends of the family, there were family members, and there was just professional mourners, and there was just anybody who got in on this thing. Okay? That's how they treated grief. They just, there were people who just, hey, someone died, let's get in on it, whether I knew them or not. That was just typical of, their, of the culture at that time. All right. So verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met uh, with him while Mary sat at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Before we get to the question he poses, Martha, it's important to see that Jesus, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. Um, The belief in the resurrection of the dead was something that was sort of new in Judaism, that 200 years before Jesus, that doctrine started started to come into Judaism. Um, Jesus, obviously, believe that. But what Jesus says to Martha is, it's not a doctrine, Martha. It's a person. It's a person. And that's who he said, I am the resurrection 
and the like. That's really key in understanding John's, uh, this chapter here, that it's the person of Jesus that is the resurrection. It's not simply a belief system or a doctrine uh, like the Sadducees, the Pharisees were believed in, and Martha believed in that too. So he was identifying himself, which means he is saying, I'm the everlasting one. I am the day of judgment. I am the last day, is what he was saying to her, which was like totally over the top for anybody to consider themselves in that way. Okay, then he asks her a question. Do you believe this? Now, what we're going to see here in a moment is that he poses this question to Martha. Again, she sure, he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He was asking her, do you believe in me as the resurrection? And the like. And then she says, a marvelous confession of, state of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So his question evokes from her faith. He, he prompts her for faith. That's why he asked that question. And Jesus, whenever he asks questions in the Bible, it's never to quiz somebody on their IQ or whether they were listening to him or not. It was it's always to provoke and, and evoke faith in their hearts. Faith that needs to be released, not just simply held within. So she was confronted with Jesus as the resurrection and the life. So this is not any longer a doctrine or a theory of belief or, you know, something that was passed down to her. Now it's a person. And he's saying, do you, Martha, believe this? Do you put your trust in me as the resurrection? That's the issue. And that's what he asks of all, all of us, really. It's a personal question to each of us. So just take out Martha and I'll put myself in there. You put yourself in there. Okay, then she said to him, okay, we got that. Verse 28 says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now, notice how Jesus, what he's doing here, and we'll cover this when we get to the notes a little bit, but uh, the outline rather, um, he is ministering, he's entering into the grief and the loss of these people, Martha and now Mary. So he's entering into the space, their space, of loss and grief. And he's evoking from them, um, as we'll say, faith from them. Now with Mary, it's going to be a little bit different, we'll see here. Now Jesus, in verse 30, had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her. That's the group told you like to get in on anything. <laughs> Any grief comes down the pike. So they were, they were like, you know, uh, they're like your, your press corps. They're looking, whoever Mary's going, we're going to follow, you know. Supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. So then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet. That's a lot different response than Martha, right? She's falling at feet as an act of worship. And says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She said the same thing Martha said. But there was a difference here. She says the same thing, but her posture of heart reflected in her bodily demeanor is an act of worship. And then when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Come back to those words in a minute, but I want to focus, first of all, on Jesus' response. Martha came, and Jesus ended up saying to her, I'm the resurrection and life, and he says, do you believe this? 
So he evoked from her a question and a release of her faith. But when Mary came, Mary evoked in Jesus weeping. Big difference there. Martha, Jesus from Martha called something forth. Mary with Jesus called something forth from within him. That is weeping. The word here, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, is I think a good translation. Um, the word, however, doesn't quite capture it. It's not really troubled, like he's disturbed about something. He's angry. Yes, Dave. Is the Mary word in here? Is this Mary Magdalene? Not Mary Magdalene. No. Okay. This is the Mary who washed the feet of Jesus. Yeah, I thought they were one. Like, no. no. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, um, he's angry. What's he angry at? Um, he's angry at because this is not his father's plan. Death was never part of the father's plan. It was never never part of the plan that the loved one that we love has their spirit separate from their body. And they lie motionless there with no animation of life. That wasn't part of his plan. And, we, and the scriptures tell us that, that, that uh, death came into the world because of the envy of Satan. Meaning he got into the act because of our first parents of sin. So our first parents' sin brought death into the world. That wasn't part of God's agenda for the human race. So he's angry because he sees the brokenness and the pain that death has caused and that it wasn't part of his father's plan. In fact, Jesus himself would have to undergo death. Spiritual death in the sense of his taking upon himself the guilt and the weight of the world's sins. But he would go through physical death as well, not part of what God ever intended for us at all. That's why St. Paul calls death the last enemy to be destroyed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's why the resurrection for us as Christians is so critical and so unique in all the world's systems, of religious systems. There isn't anything quite like it, you know, that you know, we say that God has answered death by his own son coming to die and to be raised up who in his death has conquered our death, and in his rising has given us new life, which is what everything means about the waters of baptism. So what is the Catholic Church? One way the Catholic Church expresses that is that when a body of a Christian comes into church for burial, we, we, first thing we do is they enter the church. We bless their body with holy water. Why? Because in the waters of baptism, they have been brought into a friendship with Christ, and that his life conquers their death. Because they die with him, and they're buried with him, and they rise with him to a new life. And then we place the pall over their body, symbolizing they now have the fullness of eternal life that began from at baptism. Now, that doesn't nullify personal commitment on the part of the, that Christian. They have to make a personal commitment to the Lord and live for him. Obviously, it's living in his friendship and dying in his friendship. But the church is saying at that point that their death has been conquered by Jesus' dying and rising. So that's really unique in world's religious systems. That's what makes. That's why Saint Paul said, "If Christ didn't rise from the dead, you might as well pack it all up and go home." Doesn't make any sense because we're still in our sins. Our sins aren't forgiven. That means we're locked in this box here and now. That when you die, this is all there is. You know, you step off into nothing. So Christianity, the resurrection, is not. You know, Easter time. Okay, the resurrection is so essential to who we are. In fact, the early Christians, if, if 
because of the resurrection, they could have a boldness to go forth and proclaim death and life in Christ. Death meaning we die to ourselves and we have life in Christ. They knew that they could die and death was not the last word. I'll share some of that with you, some examples of that with you in just a minute. Okay, let's go. Um, let's see, where are we? He was deeply moved in spirit, verse 34, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, come and see is a, uh, is a common phrase in John's gospel. In fact, in John chapter 1, the disciples of John the Baptist were approaching Jesus, and they said, Where do you stay? And Jesus said, come and see. It's not language of um, like location and geography. You know, it's more like, come and see, come experience my life. Okay. Come and experience my life. So come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind man uh, have kept this man from dying? So in other words, you have people who saw the love that Jesus had for Lazarus. They knew the friendship, obviously. Um, but they also had the cynics, the unbelievers. And in John's Gospel, you always have that. We saw that with the man born blind last week, or two weeks ago. Remember how the guy was healed, and then he's, he's interrogated by the Pharisees, right? Even his own parents couldn't, couldn't really vouch for him, you know. They were skeptical about the whole thing. You always see that in John. They... The world of refusal and rejection and the world of belief. And that's found oftentimes in our own hearts. That's why it's really important to deal with unbelief because it can become a major obstacle to us. It can become a source of cynicism regarding faith. All right, verse 38 then. Jesus deeply moved again. And the word for deeply moved here is that in Jesus' guts, in the very depths of his being, he is moved. So, Here's the analogy that might be helpful. Uh, it's like a, a horse. You ever heard a horse snort? Sounds like it comes deep from within. That's exactly how Jesus was moved from deep within. So it was a movement of emotion from deep within him that was ex- obviously expressed in his physical demeanor. It was a cave and a stone laid upon it. Or, um, and then Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be uh, an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would only, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? He will come back to that in the notes in just a minute. So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, they may believe that you sent me. Something not really germane to our discussion today, but just as a little side note, Jesus' relationship with the Father is expressed here. There there was a communion and an intimacy there that Jesus had to interrupt his dialogue, internal dialogue, with the Father in order to verbally pray out loud. So, So what John is emphasizing is this intimacy of communion that Jesus has with the Father. And all through John, you see Jesus saying things like this, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it. I don't speak anything unless I first hear the Father speak, which John is trying to emphasize how this intimacy of communion is something so characteristic of Jesus. All right, verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing by, they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages and his feet wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John, I mean, obviously Jesus said that, and John does more with that, though. John is emphasizing here the power of the community to free this man. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. All right. Uh, what I also want to emphasize, it says in verse 43, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, in John's gospel, the loud voice is the word of God that calls forth life. So Jesus is called the author of life, and so he has the last and final word over us as Christians, not death. So death is not the last word to be spoken over us, but life is. God's word calls forth life within us. Okay. All righty. So that's kind of... Uh, well, let's go to your outlines here, and we'll walk, walk through this, um, how Jesus deals with dead things. And I can think of things that have died in our life. They could be anything. It could be losses. Um, it could be setbacks. It could be failures. It could be broken dreams, lost dreams, broken relationships, lost relationships. You know? It could be anything that you feel has died in your life, so to speak. And we're going to see how Jesus... He interacts with us as he interacts with Martha and Mary, particularly. Okay, so the first thing is Jesus embraces them with tears. Jesus embraces them with tears. Verse 33, 35 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So Jesus is moved by our losses. That's what John's saying. He's moved by our setbacks, our failures, our our broken dreams, our broken relationships, our, our disappointments and failures. He's moved by that. He's moved to the point of tears. And you say, well, he's God. He knew he was going to raise, be raised. But that was in this conversation with somebody the other day. He knew he was God. So, like, what were the tears all about? You know, was that just like kind of like, you know, act one of act two coming up here? <laughs> so I think we forget he is not only son of God, he's son of man. So he's fully human. And so he is, as God, he raised Jesus, or Nazareth from the dead. But as man, he enters into the suffering of humanity, our brokenness. He's fully human. So he is deeply moved by the pain of our losses and brokenness. When Martha said to him, yes, Lord, that's all Jesus needed from her, was the yes, Lord, to be able to do the miracle. Sometimes in the midst of our losses, and our, all the Lord needs is a yes from him. Yes, Lord, I place this in your hands. Yes, Lord, you are all power and wisdom. You can do more than I can ever ask or imagine. Yes, Lord, you can take the brokenness and losses of my life, the darkness of my life, and you can turn it around. Yes, Lord, you can do that. So sometimes... In the midst of our losses and however our grief is expressed, the yes, Lord, is oftentimes the very thing the Lord needs to be able to work the miracles we need at the particular situations we need in. So your yes is really critical. Your response is really essential to the Lord being able to work his miracle. Okay. So Jesus' tears are not trivial, but because of his humanity, being fully human, he is deeply troubled because this isn't his Father's plan and purposes. So we're at number two, Jesus then ex- exposes the dead things in our life for a purpose. Jesus exposes them for a purpose. 
Notice when Jesus said uh, he came to the tomb, it was a cave, and with the stone laid across the entrance, he said, take away the stone, he said. Jesus doesn't want us to hide the dead things in our life, because the dead things will, will hurt us, basically. We don't, we don't look at them in the light of his resurrection, in the light of his power to work miracles. Jesus has a purpose in the midst of them. So when he says to Martha, he says, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad over, for he has been there four days. Jesus is not put off by the, the things that have gone wrong in our life. You know, He's not put off by that. So he wasn't disturbed by the odor of four days. It didn't faze him one bit. You know, and that's the way it is with us, too. So practically, as Christians, one of the ways that we expose the dead things in our life is through confession and repentance. One of the ways to get out the things in our heart that are weighing us down when we confess them uh, and, um, and through repentance. Repentance means to ter- recognize and to turn away from that and, re- and acknowledge Christ as our Savior. So, so the sacrament of reconciliation for us as Catholics particularly is one kind of dimension of repentance. It's not, it's not the only dimension. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas said that we should be doing a lot of repenting before we ever get to the sacrament. Okay, So he says you should know your sins are forgiven ever before you get there. Okay, so Because uh, the whole point is that if we are attuned to the Holy Spirit, he will help us see the areas where we need to repent from. But here's, here's the point. We, we expose, we roll away the stone in our hearts through repentance and confession. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus is not intimidated by the odor, but he's not intimidated by death either. Because he knows that death, that even Lazarus' resurrection, or some would say it's a resuscitation of the body, because basically uh, resurrection would be for Lazarus getting a whole new body. So Jesus is not intimidated by death because he knows that he came to destroy death. There's a Protestant minister who lived years ago. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. Um, his first wife had passed away, and he had some really small kids, young kids, and they were driving in the car uh, on the way back from the funeral, and uh, one of the kids said to him, Daddy, he said, I don't understand, where did Mommy go? You know, I don't understand what it means that she died. So obviously, even though he was a minister, and you know, he just didn't at that moment know how to answer his, his uh, son. So he was trying to figure out how to explain it to him and to the other ones. So just at that moment, they had come to a red light, and he says, a truck passed by and cast a rather large shadow over the car. And it's almost like Donald got an inspiration at that moment. He, he looked at the kids and, and said, kids, would you rather be hit by a truck or be hit by a shadow? And uh, of course they said, you know, they'd rather be hit a shadow because the truck would be hurtful or painful. And he said to them, he says, when you die without Christ in your life, you're hit by a truck. But when you die in the friendship of the Lord, you're hit by a shadow. That's all you get is a shadow. And that's the Christian vision of death. It's not to take away the the grieving part of it, but for the one who dies, it's like death is like a shadow. It disappears in the brilliance of the light of Christ and his resurrected life.
Okay, number three, your outline. Third principle from here is that Jesus exhibits his glory in them. Notice what he says to Martha when she says to him, he's been dead for four days, it's going to be a bad odor. What's Jesus' response? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The glory of God means the weight or the heaviness of God. That's what glory means. It means, in practical terms, it means that Jesus wants to make his presence felt in the situations that we're facing. So, when he walked the earth, he made his presence felt. He healed, he set people free, you know... He rose from the dead. He causes things to rise. He causes things to become, as it were, born again to a new way of living, a new life. He causes things. He takes disaster situations and turns them around. I often call Jesus is the greatest turnaround specialist that there is. You know, um, So Jesus has the power to make his presence felt in the situations that we're dealing with. So his question to Martha is, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would, I'm going to paraphrase this, you would see my weight felt in this situation. You will see my influence felt, your experience my influence felt, felt in this situation. You'll see me act in this situation if you believe. And I tell you that if you believe, you put your trust in me, you will see me work in this situation. That's the question he's posing to Martha. It's more, it's more than a question. It's a calling her forth to an expectant faith. Now, that's what I think, I contend, he does with us constantly, challenging us to an expected faith. Do you believe I can do something here? Do you believe I can make my influence felt? Do you believe I can act? I think it's the whole basis of our prayer, you know, when we pray. Do we just pray like buckshot, just throw something up and hope something hits, you know? Or do we pray with the expectancy that the Lord's going to make himself felt and he's going to intervene in some way to to make his weight experienced in that situation. It makes a really big difference as we look at circumstances. And he was obviously expecting Martha to have a kind of faith that would expect him to make a difference here. Okay. All right, let's look at number four then. Jesus engulfs them with love. So he takes the dead things in our life and he wants to engulf them with love. So not only does he want to exhibit his glory in the dead things of our life, but he also wants to engulf them with his love. Let's take a look here. He says, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There's a story uh, about an, of an old man who was talking to a young boy, and he said uh, to the young boy, he said, what are you... You're going to do with your life. Okay. And the little boy, young boy, said to him, I'm going to go to college, he says, I'm going to get a business. <laughs> and the old man said, okay, well, what then? Okay. And the boy said, I'm going to New York, he says. I'm going to walk on wall, work on Wall Street, become a broker, and I'm going to become a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And the old man said, okay, so what then? And he says, I'm going to buy a fine home, he says. I'm going to retire early. And enjoy the good life. And the old man looked at him and said, well, what then? He says, well, he says, I'm going to retire. I'm going to have a party and relax and enjoy my grandkids. And then the old man said, all right. He says, what then? Okay. And the boy said, okay, I I guess I'm going to die. (laughs) And the old man smiled and said, and what then? And what then? See, um, 
We need to plan for our death, not burial plots and uh, inheritances and all those things. We need to plan where we're going to go, where we'll end up. That should be part of our retirement plan, if you would. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, see, that's something we don't think about a lot, uh, is that we don't think about preparing for our eternity. And yet the church exhorts us continuously in the prayer. Just come to the liturgy. You hear it often. The church continually exhorts us to plan for our death and where we're going to end up. So the point being is that the church and the scriptures call us to a friendship with the Lord. Catherine Siena said it this way. She said, Jesus today, Jesus tomorrow, Jesus all the way to heaven. So it's, it's really being connected to Jesus. And living in his friendship is really the path to heaven. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not, a, it's not a doctrine. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. It's a person. The person of Jesus. So let's pray. So Father, we give you thanks and praise that in the midst of our um, situation in this earth where we have broken away from friendship with you. You did not abandon us, but you taught us the hope for salvation through the prophets and the covenants of the Old Testament. But then you sent us your Son, and in him was indeed the resurrection and life. And all those who come to him, as he promised, he would no way cast out or lose. So Lord, we pray that you may help us to grow in confidence in your Son as the resurrection and the life so we can boldly face the things that have died in our life, knowing that you can turn them around, and that we can boldly share you with others, knowing that you are truly the hope that people are searching for and seeking, and that we can walk with confidence and know that if we live in your friendship and die in your friendship, you promise us the hope and the home, the eternal home that you prepared for. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.